Welcome to Driving Performance. I'm your host, Tom Shea, the co-founder of Agile Media Group. I am joined with two badass founders today. We have Kim Pham from AmSam and Emmett Shine from Pattern Brands. Uh, Kim Pham's the co-founder of AmSam, a proud, loud Asian food brand reclaiming, celebrating the multitudes of Asian flavors and stories so often diluted in the mainstream. AmSam partners with iconic Asian chefs and sources the best ingredients to craft delicious rip-and-pour sauce packets like you see here. They combine specialty seasonings, aromatics, citruses, and oils needed to cook a restaurant-quality Asian cuisine. Emmett Shines, the co-founder and executive creative director of Pattern Brands. Pattern Brands is brought to you by the team that formerly was Gin Lane. They acquire and grow a high-quality portfolio of home life brands that start online and expand omni-channel. Pattern Brands has raise $100 million in venture funding, and the team owns and operates seven brands that are actively expanding their portfolio across the home goods space. Guys, welcome to Driving Performance. Thanks for having us. This yeah. is crazy. Yeah, so my first question is the same to all guests because there's going to be a lot of audio-only listeners. What the hell is going on in this set right now? How would you describe it? It's like a cubed hamster wheel. That's right. how I feel. How it's you like, feel it? <laughs> it's like a non-negative Black Mirrors episode. <laughs> well, cool, guys. Uh, I want to start off with, um, do you guys know each other? We if do. you do know each other, is there a story there? Or just if, if you remember, how do you guys meet? I, I think uh, just when Amsom came on the scene, I loved the, the colors, the font, the typography, the branding, the design. It <laughs> felt, you know, as you kind of said, like loud and proud and unique and bold. <laughs> and then getting to watch them on social do their thing, like from a brand perspective, but also... I love your Instagram of you as a person. Um, so I, I probably, they're probably one of the brands where I've shared what they do to our internal team the most, which I love. Um, That's such an honor, by I the know, way. The oh my director, I, mean. I was watching uh, RuPaul's Drag Race last night and <laughs> Sasha, I'm, I'm House of Colby all day. <laughs> yes. Sasha Colby, you know, she's like, uh, you're, you're, you're drag queen's favorite drag queen. I feel like Awesome is like, CPG brand's favorite CPG brand. Oh my god, oh you, my just, god. You, just, you just compare us to Sasha Colby? That is, if you don't know, that is a huge, huge compliment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, Emmett's work is prolific, speaks for himself. I think we got connected really early on after Amsam launched, and we just ended up, like, shooting <laughs> And I think because we're both creatives, there's, like, a lot of good vibes here. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I, I want to go a little bit deep into the background of your respective stories and what brought you here today. And and Kim, I sort of like to start with you, and I, I want to go oxtail to Amsterdam. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so when we first launched, not even the first launch, when we first kind of came up with the idea, it was originally called Oxtail, um, O-X-T-A-L-E, because Vanessa and I, she's my sister and my co-founder, um, we really believe that food is a carrier of culture and of narratives and of history, and we really wanted to build a, a name that would kind of be homage to that. We quickly got feedback that like, oh, we you hear Oxtail, we think you're a beef jerky brand. And we're like, right. oh, that's like not <laughs> it. So when we launched in May 2020, um, we decided to pivot to the name Om Som, which originates in the Vietnamese phrase Om Som, which roughly translates to like rowdy or rambunctious or like ratchet. Right. And it's actually kind of a negative <laughs> term. Like my parents used to chastise Vanessa and I when we were younger for just being really rowdy. And we love this idea of reclaiming that phrase and making it ours because right. for so long Asian Americans have been flattened, silenced, and erased. And we love this idea of building a brand that was so unapologetically like <laughs> you, middle finger to the air. We are here to be proud and loud. Right. So yeah, that's how I'm yeah. And how um take me back into like the origin story. I remember, you know, you and your sister, you, you took sort of 
I wouldn't say divergent paths, but you guys had... Definitely divergent paths. Yeah, well, we got left brain, right brain. So take me back into, like, the origin story of how you guys decided you want to start a business. Yeah, so Vanessa, left brain, I'm right brain. I'm, like, creative weirdo. She's super quant and strategic and analytical. And I think, you know, really different brains, but ultimately kind of the same heart. We, have, we share a lot of the same values. And honestly, post-2016 election, her and I were feeling really frustrated in our respective careers. I was working in BC on branded community. She was working in Bain as a management consultant. And um, I think we both were like, we want to change the world for better, but we don't know how and we want to do it within our lane. Right. And, you know, I was living in Latin America at the time and she met me down in Bolivia. I remember we were hiking in the salt flats and she was like, yo, dude, I want to die. <laughs> she was like, I'm on year two of consulting. I still feel so, that way for what it's worth. I know, I'm like, girl, it didn't get that <laughs> it, much better. It really didn't change. Um, and she, but she was like, I want to make a change in the world. I don't know how. Like, would you want to start something with me? And I kid you not, I feel like I've been waiting for that my whole life. Like, right. she's my sister. She's brilliant, so intelligent. We have a lot of the same values and heart. And I was just waiting for her to honestly build the risk profile yeah, for it. Yeah, the tolerance. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, once I got back from Latin America, we just started kind of working on Amsam weekends and nights and then took the plunge in 2020. Yeah, and, and so talk to me a little bit about the mission. Um, yeah. I, I remember, you know, you talked so eloquently about how it, it is a mission-driven company and that yeah. you see that throughout like all the chefs uh, and how they get compensated and how integral they are to the brand and also just like the complexity, I don't want to say complexities, but the amplification that yeah. occurs when, when you're fighting for something. Yeah. I would... It's so funny because I get asked this question quite a lot, and I, I guess we don't, we weren't like we're going to start a mission-driven brand. It was like right. we are first-generation Vietnamese Americans and daughters of refugees. We want to build the world that we want to see, and Amsam is absolutely a reflection of that. Um, so it, I wouldn't say it's like mission-driven, where we're using a mission as like a platform for the brand. Right. But I really see our mission as like the lens through which we view all of our business decisions, not just marketing. Um, I really perceive Amsam to be a culture brand first and foremost before we are a product brand. Like, yes, our sauces are damn delicious. Um, but really, I think we're trying to... Thank you. Thank Available you. everywhere. Beautiful model right here. Um, but I think what we're trying to ride for is something much bigger than that, which is the reclamation and celebration of third culture Asian American flavors and stories. Like, that is the heart of what we do. Yes, right now that looks like sauces. It's going to look like something else very soon. And we're just going to continue to build out this world in which Asian Americans can be loud and proud in a society and in a culture where oftentimes we're not given that that space. Yeah. I could talk about this for hours, but I don't know if you can tell <laughs> how passionate I am. <laughs> and, and I want to talk a little bit about your story. I mean, it, it's so your story is so storied in and of itself, but, um, you know, it started with skatewear and, you know, working with your friends, and then, you know, you scrapped your way to, you know, creating one of the coolest career paths and obviously one of the coolest, like, honestly, impactful design agencies of our time. So... Why don't we just start um, from early days, Emmett, and sort of how that story came together? Um, <clears throat> I think my plan is I've never really had a plan. <laughs> um, I think now that I'm getting a little bit older, I like trying to stretch time and think about things in a more like, what do I want to be doing or feeling or being in a five-year kind of capacity? But for the first almost... 30 years of my life, it was kind of month by month at best. Um, and in some ways, there's some beauty in that because you you don't get in your head too much. Right. Um, 
root of that was probably like survivally just figuring out how to make it to the next week. And, and my, my mom is a painter, um, so I grew up, you know, amongst art, like not in the categorical sense of like, I don't know, whatever. She's like an artist and like a... She's super talented. Yeah. She's, I love my mom. She's weird, like as a, you know, like really is into art, like almost doesn't believe in, you know, paying for money in the traditional sense of how we exist in society. It's more right. exchanges of energy and information and barter. And then my dad is very like, you know, blue collar, like fisherman, landscaper and works super hard. And they got divorced when I was in like middle school and that the balance of it kind of separated where there's the really work hard part and then there's the art and creativity part. And I felt my sister and I got kind of caught between both right. of fending for ourselves and trying to figure out how to navigate the world as young adults taking care of ourselves from a very young age. And I think the thing that I was able to lean into is art and creativity as a form of expression that people continue to seem to resonate with. Hey, right. that makes sense. You seem to be good at that. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, but sure. Right. Um, and I didn't have a, I didn't go to college. I didn't really apply to college. I just stayed home and landscape and lived with my mom just to make sure she was okay. And people in my town kind of were like, you should get out of here after a year. And so I went to New Zealand. I'd never left America. I just chose the farthest place. I barely left Long Island. That's the furthest place away. Got a camera, learned how to take photographs, started painting on them alone in New Zealand. Like Where in New Zealand were you? I went all over. I yeah. hitchhiked and went over the whole country for like 100 days. That's such a beautiful, a beautiful Well, I kind of like nerdily like found myself, you right. know, and, and I applied to colleges and got into <laughs> NYU Tisch. Didn't really understand what college would be, came and I, everyone else was like 13th grade, but I felt more like an adult. And I, my experience in the city was great of being in New York. I'm from Long Island, always wanted to be in the city, but it was also really challenging because the financial burden of taking care of yourself and moving into the city, it hit me like a ton of bricks day yeah, one. Right. That's brutal. And I didn't really feel the freedom that a lot of other college students had felt where like I had to think about how to pay for that night. And it was really hard to focus on my scholastic studies. And I, and I went to art school, which I wish was more vocational, right. but it was more theory. Totally. And I Most know theory is, because I know. grew up in an art household. So I've been steeped in like reading art books and going to art shows. And I didn't feel I needed as much of like, you know, learning about a daguerreotype or, you know, looking at Cindy Sherman photographs. Like I already knew that on my own. Right. I wanted to learn how to use equipment and how to get jobs and how to, you know, navigate the world as a young adult through creativity. Cause I had just seen the boulevard of broken dreams for people that I grew up with in right. and around true artists that like had receded because society didn't, it's hard to navigate and stay true to yourself. And so anyway, like I think what I started doing is I got a computer, I'd never had a computer, learned that it was cheaper to edit photography on a computer. Then I learned, you know, design chop. And then I learned, you know, web design. Then I learned web development. And I just started selling everything that I was doing to try to pay amongst the 10 other jobs that I was working to live in New York City. Right. And from that, I just started really just hustling. You know, I can build you a website. I can do your photo shoot. I can do your branding. And then my friends, you know, were all skateboarders and <clears throat> wanted to do a t-shirt skateboarding brand. So I just 
did all the graphics for that, did the website for that, learned how to you know incorporate and copyright and trademark and e-com fulfillment and trade shows. So I just became like a one-man band that didn't stop for like 10, 15 years. And Jin Lane came out of it, no one would pay me on time. I was just right. a freelancer and, you know, okay, net 120. And I'm like, I need the money tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I just came up with a name and I, I worked on move, almost two years under this guise mm -hmm. that I worked for this agency, but it was just me. Great. And then two years in, it actually kind of turned into something, just fake it till you make it, perception is reality. <laughs> But that, by that point, I knew such a, a cohort at an interesting time in New York City of I knew artists and I knew technologists. And that, that Venn diagram, I think, was a really special moment where the fashion industry, the media, the publishing industry in New York, it's called like the Warhol economy, before startups, before venture capital really hit New York for that, that was a sector we worked in. And so in the early 2000 teens, when your Warby Parker, your Bonobos, your Everlanes, right later your Glossiers, et cetera, they started to say, hey, there's a way to create brands in a millennially different capacity online first. We were de facto Zappos. stop, well, post Zappos. Zappos yeah. was early 2000s. Which mm -hmm. they, what they did is they built a new model for pure e-commerce that was post like a, a J. Crew or an L.L. Bean that right. were direct mailers. And then on top of the Zappos, that's what people studied at business school, because these were all business school guys innovating on it, was let's mix in a more artistic take, better customer service on top of the Zappos model. And so we were the de facto stop amongst a few other places to visit for how to visually convey a certain time and place and feeling um, that was quite sequestered and quite small, but I think branched out where years later you have, you know, Omsum here and they're owning a, a, like a, a, a new lens or a new capacity of communication. So I think it was a tight little origin mm -hmm. that opened up like a beautiful universe. cacophony of branches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that story's so incredible. And so to back up a little real quick, we are in a truck. So there are a few different stops on uh, this proverbial route. And, you know, we just got to the first one in terms of like backstories, but Next ones will be brand-specific questions. The next stop after that will be brand intersection questions, so things where you guys might have similar or different takes, but one question posed to the both of you. Stop four will be a segment we call The Hot Box, um, <laughs> and we'll talk about that when we get there. And then stop five is uh, quite literally the end. But I want to get into um, some of the brand-specific questions that I had here. And Kim, we'll start with you. I think everything I know about Amsam, they're there's so many elements of fabric and culture um, that is Kim Pham and Vanessa and Amsam. And obviously, you co-founded the business with your sister. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I understand your parents were Vietnamese refugees. And I think it's dangerous to ascribe stereotypes. But, you know, I feel like those first-generation immigrants, they really, like, are looking for safety. Like, what's those safe roles? And here you are, like, the top of your game and the opposite side of the pendulum. And so... You know, I also sort of want to, like, platform your parents a little bit because of... <laughs> Mom and Papa fan, we dude, love them. I mean, They're the, fucking rad. Like, those are the parents I honestly aspire to be when I have children. <laughs> so, I guess a few questions here. One, can you talk about, like, the family and, and how they've set you up to be here? Yeah. And also just, like, working with family. I think it's interesting. We've had a few mm. people on this show that... Um, <laughs> a surprising amount, actually, that work with family. Hmm. Okay. Yes, that's a great, great question. I'm like, so many different angles I could approach this. 
Yeah, so I guess the the first piece you said of like let's not prescribe stereotypes. My parents are really atypical, I would say, for the stereotypical Vietnamese refugee um, profile. They're weirdos, like absolute hippies. Like honestly, <laughs> I think when I you saw were talking video about of your dad dancing, yeah, I remember. Oh, well, we love that. They're just like they're. It's largely driven by my father, but he basically came to the U.S. and was like, you know, refugee fleeing communism post 1975, right? A very specific sort of trauma and experience that comes from that. And so when he came to the U.S., I remember I'm his oldest, and he turned to me and he's like, Kim, I came to America for you to be the weirdest version of yourself. And That's I was like, like all my right. my favorite quote of all time. Bet. I yeah. was like, all right, Dad, like, you, you said I could do it. And I think what that kind of gave me space for was a lot of freedom, a lot of creativity, a big focus on, like, authenticity and self-expression. He really enabled me. So I also went to NYU, but I was like the world's worst student. I think I graduated with like a 2.9 because I was just so busy like being a person of the internet. And my father, who's a software engineer. Plug, plug, him <laughs> of the internet. <laughs> of the internet is, um, if you want to find me on the internet. Um, he always kind of like raised me on the internet. Right. And I think, yeah, they're, they're, they, they make a lot of choices as parents that were really atypical. So never did we have the doctor-lawyer thing that right. a lot of, I think, Asian-American kids grow, grow up with. That was never, I never felt any pressure. Still to this day, no, nothing around like getting married or having kids. They really were just like, we want you to be happy. We want you to do well. We want you to do good. We want right. you to be good people. And like from that, you know, we're, we're kind of down to see it kind of all unfurl. Yeah. Um, and like Amsom literally is like an homage to them. Because I think my parents are very... Um-sum. They're very on-ow, which is like another variation of that word. They kind of live life in their own way. And my dad is like 5'4", jacked, tatted, short king, who <laughs> rode like motorcycles growing up. Yeah, total short king. Um, like tatted, like <laughs> moto pants, leather jackets. My mom is like 5'8", platinum, bleach blonde hair, oh, yeah, implants. Um, like they're just weirdos. And I, I think Vanessa and I kind of had this model of like unorthodox self-expression growing up. And, and I don't know, that absolutely shows up in the way that I am as a founder and as a yeah. human. And what's it like working with your sister? I love it. It took, a, it, there were some growing pains. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think what's rad is that at the heart of all of it, deep trust, deep love for one another of like, Amazon will fail if we succeed, but at this, at the, Helm at the, I guess, expense of our relationship. Like, right. I, she's my best friend and my sister. Um, but what's also really great is that we're really different. So it's really nice to be like, okay, we have a lot of the same values. Oftentimes we're, you know, aligned on decision making, but we also just have different ways of approaching it. Like, she's super quant, strategic, analytical, I'm creative, weirdo, internet person. Um, and it just, I don't know, it, it feels perfect. Yeah. Very complimentary. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, I mean, Anouk was on yesterday, the founder of Belgian Voice, and, yeah. and so I keep seeing this theme of people working with family, and, like, everyone's like, <laughs> never work with family, it's the worst thing you could do, but she says it so eloquently of, like, listen, this is my husband, like, mm -hmm. there's no one I trust more, there's mm -hmm. no one that has, like, the same values more than he does, we are aligned in our incentives mm -hmm. and, like, what we want and what we want to communicate to our children and show them, and, you know, I, I, I think it's... What, what I always thought was a counterculture counter take, I think, is just, like, coming back to the forefront. I actually, I think it's pretty binary. You I feel so? like it's either a great decision or it's a really awful Train one. Wreck. It's literally one or the other. Yeah. Um, and because every time, you know, 
I talk about running a business with my sister, people are like, it's either, oh my God, I can't wait to do that with my sibling, right, husband, right. whatever, or it's absolutely, yeah, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's binary. <laughs> cool. Emmett, I, um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Gin Lane. Um, it's so core to, you know, your origin story. And, you know, it's really one of the most influential design agencies of our time. And, and I mean that, like, I could not be more impressed and inspired by the work that comes out of there. Like, you list off a few names. It's Hymns, it's Recess, it's Smile Direct Club, it's Sweet Green, it's Everland, like it's Godfather Bonobos. Dude, you're like, <laughs> how does it feel to be like, first off, how does it feel to just like, I don't know, be... What I said before, I guess, and other things on it was that like, again, like I admired my mom so much. Like, she's just... And also, I like, back to what you guys are talking on, like, my mom helped create the initial branding for Pattern, the company that myself, Nick and Suze, built out of Gin Lane, where right. we could own and operate our own brands. And I wanted to, you know, Gin Lane has kind of, in certain worlds, become known for like the millennial blanding, you know, which is such a good, fun, like dissy name of like that era, which, you know, it's like a premium, mediocre, chuggy kind of stuff. But right. I think it is this notion of like aspirational accessibility, whatever. But so when we were launching Pattern, I really wanted to go like nature-y and touch by hand and artistic-y mm. and we have, gravitationally pulled back to some of the more streamlined graphical representation. But I think at the core, like the logo and stuff is done by my mom by hand. So yeah, I've been kind of working with family and friends since I was a teenager. And I, I kind of want to get to a place in my life where I feel, you know, I'd never raised any money or everything I'd always done, but independent until pattern, which we can talk on more a little bit, but I wanted to kind of feel like touch the electricity of the challenge of like pro grade basketball of what the VC world could be like. And it is really hard and I've learned a lot from that. But my goal also is to like continue to do creative endeavors with friends and family and people that I love and be passionate, but find ways to earn livings. Yeah. And I think a lot of, for me, like doing Jin Lane was, it was really hard doing business with my friends growing up of like, okay, you're, you're a nightclub promoter. You're going to be head of marketing oh, cool, you're good at, like, counting cash, you're going to be, like, the accounting guy. CFO. It, it doesn't always one-to-one <laughs> -one translate, and you can try as much as possible. So Gin Lane, for me, was also a vehicle for learning. Right. You know, I was like, okay, well, if I work with other entrepreneurs, you know, I'm an art school, college dropout, like, that try to make a skateboarding company, you know, like, I can learn through my creativity how to do business. Like, I always like the term, like, application arts. So it's, like, art, which is applied, and that was always my like in for trying to understand business. And I felt I've been on this continuous journey of trying to understand the intersection of self-expression and creativity and commerce. Yeah. And it can be really dark and it can be really restricting and really challenging. But in other ways, it also can feel really beautiful when you can express something like you said, hey, this is almost like a cultural brand first. We, we have like a lot that we want to get across and we're using this CPG product as a vehicle for yeah, doing that. Mm -hmm. So, you mean to tell me that I can integrate my shop with you in less than a minute? You store all my inventory across your 50 plus fulfillment centers in the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia, and then fulfill all of my orders globally with over a 99% order accuracy rate? That's right. We do that for over 7,000 brands today. And you can do that for all my D2C, B2B, and Amazon orders? Yep. And when my next TikTok video goes viral or during the holiday rush, you can grow with me forever? Yes, again. Dang. That's the ship.
Bob? Check out ShipBob at ShipBob.com to unlock your fulfillment provider that acts as your personal chief supply chain officer. And the gin lane, obviously, like, it came together because you're you're doing all this scrappy work and people were, you're, you're, you set yourself, your only ass always were, hey, like, you know, just put in a good word the next time. And it's, it's incredible to see how that, like, organic flywheel and that sense of community, like, really turned it into the, the behemoth that it became. But then, you know, sort of at, at the top, and I think it's this is one of the cool, my favorite parts of, of everything I've learned about you, at the top, Gin Lane decided to sort of take a different path. And you talked a lot about, like, how there were some parts of the business that were bringing you joy, there were some parts that were extremely difficult. And so all of that's Im- embedded in that decision. So I'd love to just hear the transition from Gin Lane into Pattern Brands. I think there's a book, it's the guy's Joseph Campbell, and it's like, a hero has a thousand faces. Mm. And it's like the Star Wars, you know, to... Homer, Odyssey, whatever, just as long as there have been people, there have been stories. And there's like the hero and, you know, he is from some distant place and then he's an insider, then he's outcast and has to go find himself and then he triumphant returns like, you know, again, like Star Wars or like Avatar or whatever, which is, you know, those are based on stories forever of just normal humans. Like, I've always liked stories and I think for Jin Lane, when I felt we actually had weirdly gotten to a place where we were really respected and doing really good work, on one hand, I got really nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of, I like rap, I like sports and like, they're like young people's games to some extent where you know what, you don't Mm -hmm. want to love the musician who's still kind of you know, going on stage and their voice is cracking. I saw Bob (laughs) Dylan and like, you know, he's an icon, but he's no one, had, like, no one had the gall to be like, dude, yeah. you sound like your mom in, in, in sports, I always like when athletes like won a championship and then kind of retire. Like totally. Yeah. You know, I love that. so I almost wanted to like, what's our version of like becoming a, a good broadcaster? Right. You know, <laughs> like going behind the booth. And I think for Jin Lane, we, again, so much of it also like, I think it's just liking people. I think that's the other thing is like, I've always liked people and I've always tried to bet on the underdog and find great talent and support them and empower them and then try to find cool founders and listen to them. I want to do this and I want to do that. They could be a dog walking practice or they could be some VC backed, you know, business school graduate. But if I think they're a good person and they have some story they want to tell, how could I try to help to communicate that? And I could see the era that we were a part of was changing. I could see that the landscape was going to move to a lot of different ways. Technology was democratizing a lot of things that people would pay money for. I think on the branding side, I saw a splintering where there, there isn't more these mega agencies or whatever yeah. that are gatekeepers for taste because taste now is so democratized. Mm. And I also saw that the, the models of like more performance marketing, e-com driven, right. were going to pre-COVID, you know, that was going to dominate commerce and it wasn't going to be as qualitatively forms of expression. And so I saw the writing on the wall that what we were great at wouldn't necessarily be indicative of driving success moving forward. And it felt like a good intersection to go into a next chapter, which was like, okay, we're really good at this one part, but we don't know how to operate a business or do all the other end-to-end things. Right. And my unrelenting like desire to keep learning wanted to go from being really good at something that I felt had a ceiling to sucking at something that didn't have a ceiling. Yeah. And so pattern has been three plus years of absolute eating dirt humbling. But that's what I like because that's how I feel like I'm always future-proofing myself. Mm. I don't want to be really great at something that has obsolescence. I'd rather be learning something that has a lot of upside. 
yeah. and owning end-to-end commerce understanding across multiple channels, especially post-COVID, it, it's an incredibly valuable skill set. It is so hard to do. Yeah. Damn. And I think like those, those leaving your company, you know, I've always, I've also always thought out like, what's the most difficult thing I could find? Because I think every time I run myself in that situation, that's when you feel the most alive. That's when you like learn the most about yourself and like all, all those things. So I, I couldn't agree more, Emmett. And um, Kim, I sort of want to get back to you here and talk a little bit about AMSAM and the intersection of MSG. And I, I think it's a really interesting transition of like, you know, finding whether intentional or not finding a difficult thing to have to overcome. And so, you know, there's a lot of literature on MSGs banned from Whole30 for quite some time. And you look at the literature that has resulted in the reversal of that ban and, and AMSAM's literally all over it. So I think a few things for people who aren't familiar, like what is MSG? What is Whole30? And can you talk about that just like you know, it's more of that reclamation of, of yeah. like reality and expression. Yeah. So for those of y'all who don't know, MSG or monosodium glutamate um, is a very delicious ingredient and compound that's typically added to dishes to bring out umami. Um, it's used across a variety of cuisines, but in America, it has largely been tied and associated with Chinese American cuisine and is largely used as a scapegoat, frankly, for a lot of xenophobia and racism against Chinese-American restaurateurs um, and chefs. And so there's obviously, you know, this whole myth of like, oh, MSG gives me headaches, when it's been proven time and time again that that's not true. The FDA came out in 1984, said that's not true. Um, But it became this really convenient vehicle for this idea that Asian-Americans, Chinese-Americans are like dirty, right, or unhealthy. And so... When we started AMSAM in 2020, we literally couldn't turn a corner without someone being like, oh, do you have MSG in your products? And we're like, we don't, but like, like that was so frustrating. And so one day I literally, I was like, we have like this little baby platform of like 10,000 followers. But I was like, let me just like pen a post because I I do all of our content. Right. Just a little post of like, hey, let's talk about the roots of xenophobia in anti-MSG sentiment. And it actually like went viral in a way. That was our first ever viral post. Right. And I was like damn, there's something here. Yes, it's about MSG, but I think it's largely around Asian Americans not feeling seen or heard in their fullness. And frankly, like, you know, May 2020, a lot of communities of color are having conversations around equity and representation and justice. And it's continued on. And and we're like, there's something here where MSG is bigger than us. And so we're like, all right, like, I want to keep beating this drum. And so... We started doing more content MSG. We released the first ever product to proudly feature MSG as an ingredient, which we actually did a collaboration with Pepper Teigen, Chrissy Teigen's mom. Hey. Um, we dropped a salt and pepper and MSG shaker yeah, set those are sick. because we were like, yo, this deserves to be on every kitchen you know, table right alongside salt and pepper. I put that in the post-production. Yeah. <laughs> those, are, those, those were cool. I remember when you guys launched that. Yeah. And, and like, to be honest with you, I kind of, I see Amsam as a little bit of my playground of how can I live my values out loud as a person? And like you said, using CPG product as a vehicle for that. Um, And so yeah, Whole30 last year announced that they were removing MSG from their restricted list. And Whole30 has like a huge impact on the way that Americans eat. It is like a, it is an institution um, and that shapes how we eat. And yeah, they were, they're like, we removed MSG off the list and they directly kind of cited Amazon as, as part of the reason why. And I was like, I was yeah. like, I can die. Like, yeah. no, I don't want to. But, like, 
I mean, that's rad. Like, I, it's a, it's a, it's, I believe progress happens in, like, all the lanes. Totally. And my lane for that year felt like that. And yeah. so, yeah, it was just, um, it was rad. I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, I mean, it's so cool. You know, that's, like, sealed in the history books. Like, I was looking, yeah. I was, like, in the, doing all the <laughs> research, and I was, like, I'm almost literally all over this. So, yeah. I think it's so badass that you guys were able to, to hack that. Um, all right, Emmett, back to you. Uh, so, you know, pattern, I sort of want to get more into pattern brands and like the, the current lay of the land. So, you have Gurry, you have Open Spaces, Letterfolk, Onsen, Yield, Poquito, Equal Parts. So, I guess, first, I, I want to talk about each of your children individually, <laughs> and then really about the family and like the vision for pattern brands, because it's, it's so unlike anything I've like, you know, we're both running our organizations, right? It's just, like, so unique and different. And I think it'd be a mistake to call it, like, a roll-up company, given how much, like, respect you give to the people's visions that were part of, like, the initial mission statement. So can you talk about your children? Yeah, I think the key word you said is respect. I, I think that's important for me. And I think a lot of, like, the narrative of my journey has been trying to see people for who they are and like a pre being present it's like you know put your phones down it's that type of mentality right and i have so much respect for entrepreneurs and people that beat to their own drums and try to take something someone sent me something on instagram or whatever yesterday it's like 10 percent of people like it's like gross simplification social media infographic but it's yeah, like yeah. it's like 10 percent of people like not cited at all want you know try to make a career being creative it's like and then 10 percent of those like actually follow their pursuit and then 10 percent of them actually like do it it keeps going like 10, mm. it's, it's so statistically hard just to not deny the little voices inside of yourself right so so again i'm so bad at like contextualizing stuff pattern is like a a family of brands focused on, you know, U.S.-based, like, home good items for people especially that are, like, newly habitating homes. You know, they're forming families. They're in their 30s into 40s. You know, some are younger, some are older, but generally that kind of, like, time in your life where you're looking to settle down and, and architect an adult life. Mm. You know, it could be yourself. It could be with a partner. It could be a family. We, we saw that that is an interesting area to explore in 2017, 2018, because coming out of the Great Recession for a lot of millennials, they had racked up debt. You know, they weren't able to um, accumulate as much savings. Right. We were all living in U.S. cities. That's where the, the knowledge information economy work was. You know, and you're doing a lot of expression where it's a sweet green or an outdoor voices or a glossy or whatever that cost money that you were spending versus like saving it to go buy a house. Right. But at some point that was going to happen. So we bet that this under tapped area was going to explode. And then COVID just further exploded it. Oh, I can't imagine. And we basically like, this could be an interesting place for us to build on top of a, a business thesis, which was that a lot of the commerce brands that we worked with basically like, VC model in the U.S. is really from Silicon Valley, West Coast, around software. And software has these things like network effect or like blitz scaling. You know, they don't necessarily apply for atoms. They don't necessarily apply for physical goods. That has been a reckoning of the past five, ten years, especially in the New York D2C ecosystem or CPG, right. is expecting software velocity and software returns. We saw that we didn't think that was going to continue. And so our idea was... There's these concentric circles of cohorts. If you can get a brand to do 5, 10, 15, 20 million in revenue, 
profitably and sustainably, just let it organically slowly grow versus trying to force it, yeah. it to get right. to a hundred million, which you have to do a lot of like, I equate it to like uh, chickens, you know, free range versus like pump with steroids. Yeah. You know, it's like we were looking for free range chickens. Right. And, and, and if we could build um, a family of doing that, that could be a scaled business that could be profitable. So we have been trying to build a profitable scaled business from day one. So back to the entrepreneurs, we ended up in COVID stumbling into this model where we could buy brands already existing. There, none of them have taken in a dollar of fundraising or investing, and they've built multi-million dollar brands just slow and steady, quietly all across the U.S. And that's been so like exciting and awesome to see, and, and that's why I like to celebrate these founders versus, oh, Pattern's the protagonist, we bought this business. Mm. It's they're the protagonist. Right. We're celebrating that they completed on their terms a life cycle. Yeah. Mm. I think it's strategic, yeah, right? Like they... They got there, right? They're they're the legends to me. Right. Like they had an idea that you know it's a working mom and a husband, and you know they overnights and weekends said we're going to solve this problem. We're really passionate mm -hmm. about it, and then lo and behold, years later they built a successful multi-million dollar home good brand that they're proud to sell. It's a pattern, and then we're proud to try to preserve that DNA and that story and just get into more retail doors, more households, more people online. I'm going to take a second to gas Emmett up because, like, for where he is, like, literal godfather of this industry in so many ways, like, is such a kind and humble operator. It's, like, really It's bad. insane. It's really I mean, and that's what I said, like, when I, when I met you, Emmett, I, I, like, it was on a superficial basis. And I know you're so modest about these things, but, um, you know, I think your success is deserved by how you carry yourself. Um, and it, 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 I think we saw a lot of those you know the respect and homage you pay to the people who have built these brands and continue. I'm just so. thankful to be here, and like <laughs> I think Kim and Vanessa and Amsom, like they're Aww. they're gonna be superstars, yeah. you know. And I think what you're doing is cool. So my happy so place. So much love in here, my God. I mean, my, my happy place is just being around cool, creative people. Yes. That's where I I don't like the other stuff. I like just like roll <laughs> yeah. your sleeves up and like just make stuff and do stuff. Yeah. And so uh, let's let's riff on that. I, I want to talk about teams. Um, obviously, you sort of have your not your reflection. I guess the opposite, Kevin, your sister, and Emmett. You clearly love a certain element of the business. I imagine you don't like others. Um, so let's go with this. Like, what what's a role you wish you hired for earlier? Ooh. And I know there might need to be some thought behind that question. It could also be, you know, go ahead. I will say, I wish we hired a fractional CFO earlier. Okay. Um, I think supply chains, working capital, like there's just some tricky things that I just wish we had like a better financial quant hold on earlier. Yeah. But that's very specific to, I think, me and Vanessa's skill set. Yeah. yeah. I think for Pattern, it's been a, a real learning process. And I think like honesty is important, especially when, you know, we've raised a lot of money, people in the industry know us. I think like, being really humble is important. There are a lot of challenges every day to what we have been doing. And I think we, the, the hard thing is sometimes when people think you're good at something, to be vulnerable is scary. Right. And so we had to really learn performance marketing, you know, operating finance, supply chain, retail. These are things that everyone thinks we were really good at something, but we weren't good at these other parts. Right. And so to my two partners, Nick and Suze and Pattern, 
I think especially the last year, we've just kind of said like, we just need to figure this out and stop like dancing around it mm. and have really dove in of like, again, being humble and going within the industry and saying, we don't know how to do this at the level we hold ourselves to. Can you help? And it's so powerful because the response from people has been so helpful. So getting fractional leadership, getting mentors, getting advisors, like really getting into the brass tacks, I think is something that I wish that we had done. I shouldn't say wish because like if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. You can't go back and redo. (laughs) But good good advice to someone listening to it or ourselves back then would have just been getting into the harder things you're more scared about way earlier and leading through super confident vulnerability of saying, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be really challenging. Instead of thinking... I'll intuit my way through it mm. is getting a lot of people around you yeah. that ha- that have the battle scars. They've done it and they've fucked up. And right. so that's what I try doing is saying to people like, hey, let hey kid, like let me explain to you like all the things that we've messed up and done. We're still in the game. Right. You know, so I think like just just being really confident in your vulner- vulnerability from yes. from a business perspective because it's really hard. And I, the last thing I'll say is I think the freaking playbook for building all these businesses is mostly wrong. I think it's dead, yeah. So like- I think right now, everyone is kind of collectively trying to figure out how to sustainably grow businesses that can scale and be profitable without losing their soul or their minds. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That part. <laughs> yeah. And- <clears throat> Damn, dude. I mean, I think I could listen to you, like, all day. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, yeah, I, you know, you're absolutely right. And, like, I think about our success, right? And, and don't get me wrong, this was, like, more of a matter of necessity than it was, like, a planned ordeal. And in hindsight, I would have done it all over again. But when we were starting, we took uh, the family and friends on. We took, like, 5K checks from everyone. And it wasn't – I don't think it was ever about the money for us. It was about having people with some skin in the game that cared about us. And to your point – we, our, our success has always been we, don't, we know what we don't know, but we know people who can solve for those gaps. And so, and this isn't a great analogy, but I always, I always talk about when we're going through these peaks and valleys of like, we sort of have a political campaign and we are, there's going to be times we need to rally our base to like come to our support. And so I, I hear so much of that and what you're saying of just like, you, you know, you're back, you're back to being humbled of like, and, and it's, I you know, only imagine the pressure that comes with that when, when you've had so much success. And like, I, I think it's really interesting leading with vulnerability as, as a, almost like a competitive advantage when, when so many people don't. But so I want to just um, put a bow on the pattern brands. Um, for people who aren't as familiar with the strategy, uh, you're acquiring brands that are, you know, sustainable, cash flow positive, things like that. Um, Talk through that strategy, uh, like from almost more like a strategic perspective. Is there a point where that ends? How did you talk a little bit how you end up with home goods? And I thought that was really interesting. But um, are you actively acquiring brands? Are there like certain criteria you're looking for? How do you think about pattern brands, where it is now and where it's going? Yeah, I think we have so many more. Like I remember reading about um, when like how Tesla would roll their cars out and it was more positioned as a software company versus a car company because through the air they could push updates that Mm -hmm. would like surprise and delight consumers obviously there's 10 million other things you could say about tesla but from that specific lens 
I always really liked also the model of like going from, you know, this luxury car all the way down to like electrifying the energy grid and getting the auto vehicle industry to go to that. There was this larger vision. And I think for Pattern, we have all these chapters that we're still building towards. So we're just focused on the home category and we haven't even really leaned in of turning the switches on of what we can do with membership, loyalty, incentives. Right. There's so many things of like, it's so much hard work of building behind the scenes. So we're gonna continue to, to bring on more brands, staying focused on home and home life. And then number one, just like trying to implement this evolved playbook, which is like disciplined growth. It, you know, for example, our team is like global and remote now. Right. It's really different than what I'm used to. You know, Jim Lane, everyone worked in New York City. So we right. just go to all these brands and all their offices and everyone's here. It's, you know, it is, first of all, it's a more multicultural team we have. We're time zone agnostic, asynchronous. And the, the discipline of what we're trying to build to, I think fundamentally is something that is new for us. And then from a customer perspective, like I have some friends where they have like 50 pattern products in their home, you know, and I think like I love Muji. Muji is another mission-driven brand that has a larger, like, 100-year plan. Right. So I, I think it's going to take a really long time for us to even get close to reaching our potential. And I think we know that. And it does keep us really humble because it, it's such a hard goal to kind of get to. Um, so I'm kind of rambling, but like, yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's great. So real quick, um, before I, I turn it back over, can you just talk through maybe in order of operations, the different brands, just yeah. for people who aren't familiar with them, I want to make sure they know what they yeah, are, where for they sure. can get them. Like yeah, um, there's Open Spaces, which is like a home organization, was very influenced by like, I love that one. Scandinavian. I yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm like a sneakerhead, so that was something I was really proud to oh, work on and design cool. because there was nothing. I think America is such a fascinating dichotomy, melting pot of people and culture and everything. And again, like on the Omsum lens, like, there wasn't brands like you guys as much as there are now, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, yeah. et cetera. I also think America's so young in terms of sensibilities and it's mm -hmm. so big that everyone just made McMansions and stuff, whatever. And so I love like Scandinavian or Asian design sensibilities where, you know, places are older and space is tighter. And so, and you don't want to just be buying, you know, these big box retailer plastic crap. Right. Yeah. You know, you buy it and you throw it out. Totally. It's like, for me, I love the anthropomorphization of everything. Anything you buy, like think it has like a conscious or a soul or something, you know? So trying to make things that are like a little bit more durable and can kind of last long. And for open spaces, it's like storing stuff but not hiding it. Right. Then there's equal parts, which more- I use their knife yeah, this morning. Yeah, it's just no. wearing it right there. <laughs> um, so I think for that also, that's been a super competitive space and we've more disciplined try to run that in a not hyper growth way. We just didn't see it have the scaling potential as some of the other brands. Yeah. Gear is the first brand we bought, GIR, acronym for Get It Right. That's in the baking space. A lot of you know chefs that are really great love using it at home. Letterfolk is like a, a kind of playful brand that's tactile for uh, new parents. So they're famous for their tile mat and their letter boards. Yeah, there's, I love those. They were at the Pocino. Yeah, yeah, and and Paquetto is a, an incredible brand out of Los Angeles, almost 20 years old. Ted and Angie founded it that has worked with the creative and art community in, in greater Los Angeles. 
that again, like I just love celebrating them because I think what they've done is so phenomenal. There's Yield Design Co., which is like beautiful glassware. Um, I think most recently there's um, Onsen Towels. Um, not Onsen. I always get the two confused. One of the founders is partially Japanese and spent a lot of time growing up there in the Onsen Springs. Mm. And they have, you know, a more distinct waffle weaving way of doing their towels and their bathrobes, which mm. is lighter and it dries faster versus, right. again, Americans love these like things of comfort, Hyper, but they, they actually don't really functionally work as well. Right. So I think if there's a lot of entrepreneurs and stuff out there too, I think looking at other, tapping into your culture or where you're from or what you know around the world, there are, for example, I was speaking to someone, you know, cause we are buying brands and it was a Southeast Asian founder and they had a, I forget the type of elements, but it's for pillows and it's like these little pellets, you know, and they were saying like how when they came over, you know, their kind of, you know, immigrant story, their, their dad would always sleep on like a very thin little pillow that like the neighborhood kids would make fun of the dad if they had sleepovers because he would sleep on this wacky pillow. Yeah. But it turns out it's way better for your neck and your posture. He would, you know, lay flat and just have this little pillow. And now she's selling Whoa. with her dad yeah. this type of like filler for the pillows because again, in America, you just buy these giant plush pillows, yeah. but they're not functional, they're yeah, not they're good just, for you. So, yeah. so much of the stuff that we interact with on a daily basis, if you actually look at it, and you look at other places around the world of things that have worked, it's not whitewashing it, it's like, that's where I think America's great. Right, yeah, I, it's so interesting. So, I, I just put this together now, but some of these guests, it's like, there's clearly a theme of globalization, and like the world getting smaller, and the exchange of all these thoughts and ideas, and, and obviously, Give me an example of that, but um, we also have Jing coming on. We have Sandra coming on, and so it's interesting. So cool. It's yeah. So it's it's the world's just getting smaller, and I'm sure it makes sense, right? With like all of um, communication, transportation, all these things that have advanced so much. But it's cool to see what feels like the apex of culture, where we're finding the some of the best unique things from each culture, and they're all starting to intersect and, 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 and I, I think, think it's when so like you're in control of the narrative like mm -hmm. Kim and Vanessa for Omsum like I learn a lot through these brands right because it's them yeah. bringing the information to the forefront and that's where I think also social media it it's more valuable because there's more of a story to tell right yeah, yeah. and I think it's also rooted in like frankly reclamation and ownership of our own narratives by us for us yeah. like I like when I thought about brands when people were like oh who inspired you to start Omsom I was like I didn't look at a brand in Whole Foods I looked at FUBU right like I was looking at what yeah, like these communities were like we're gonna take back the narrative this is our story to tell and how do we do it in a way that's like compelling and interesting but also like honors and celebrates our roots whatever that means like I I don't Amsam is not like an Asian brand. We are an Asian American brand. We are totally. proudly and loudly third culture. What does it look like for a brand to kind of like pay, you know, homage to the motherland and, you know, my parents and that beautiful heritage story? And also what is it like for Vanessa and I to be like New Yorkers and, you know, Vanessa and music and myself and BDSM and kink and like how do we bring all of that to the table and, and, and show something that is uniquely third culture yeah you know and i you know some it's that's such a good transition to um the story of how you you know it's more than just one culture you guys have brought more more than just your culture or your heritage to the forefront through Amsom. um and in doing so you did it 
the right way, right? Because there's a reclamation by the chefs who are involved. So can you talk about like just how the products come together and your process for like building in authenticity? Yeah. Oh, there's so many things I want to dig into. So first, yeah. So for every single one of our products, we partner with a chef of that background. So for our Japanese sauce, we work with a Japanese chef, etc. Um, and they are paid a royalty fee. That was built into our business model literally since day one. Because I think it literally... Thank you. Which isn't easy to do. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I look back sometimes and I'm like, is that the right decision? It absolutely was in the sense of, like, I think it arose from Vanessa and I's very real frustrations as Vietnamese Americans of seeing folks, like, co-opt and profit off of our flavors and stories without a penny of that going back to the communities. And so yeah. we're like, all right, yes, we're Asian American, but we're Vietnamese. We can't purport to tell people how to eat Korean food or Chinese food, and so we have to work with chefs of that background. So we work with these incredibly, I think like they're iconic Asian chefs, building their own empires in their own right um, to develop all of our products that are paid a royalty fee. Um, but honestly, we pull that thread all the way through. It's not just with our chefs, right? Like right. we spend over 95% of our creative dollars with Asian American creatives, designers, um, vendors, partners, etc. Our team is all women, largely women of color. 50% yeah. of our cap table are either women um, queer folks or um, people of color. Right. And like, I think how you live your values is not just a marketing lever. It's it's something that you pull all the way through. And I'm really grateful to do that Amsam, although I will say it makes it much harder. Yeah, I mean, that, that cap table, for example, like that. Dude, it's brutal. It's like a 98% white male dominated industry. Like yes. that's, that's obviously yeah. not, but at the same time, I do think I'm gonna take the other side. Like you probably have an advantage mentally, and it maybe doesn't feel this way, but like the authenticity and like everything you're doing and doing it the right way is probably what can help you get you through some of those. Like, is if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's brutal. It definitely introduces a lot more friction. Right. Introduces just difficulty at every corner, and it right. shows up in ways that I just wasn't even expecting. Frankly, as a founder, but I will say, you know, Vanessa and I go to bed every night feeling proud of what we're doing. Yeah. I I feel proud of the decisions we make. Which I'm, is so important. Yeah, life is short yeah. and long at the same time. And so It's so easy to be feel forced into compromise. Yeah. And it's so hard to stick to your values. Yeah. But in the end, it's rewarded. Yeah. So it's like what you live and you die by. And I mean, you know, I the Vanessa story of like, she's at Bain, right? Yeah. yeah. And like, she was looking around and she was like, hey, there's no South... Southeast Asian American woman at the yeah. top and it's something that I thought was so inspiring when she was like either I become part of the machine and I can try to fix the machine by being there long enough but what she said and which I feel so relevant is I ha probably have to compromise on a lot of my values yeah. to get to the top and so you know obviously you guys set out to create a different machine and yeah. hack it that way yeah we'll see we'll see how it plays out and I think it's going <laughs> so far so good um, alright so I want to shift gears, Kim, and talk about some new products you have coming. Yeah. So I'm really excited, honestly, just to learn and listen about yeah. how all this came together, <laughs> like the inspiration, following the data, all of those elements. So yeah, better than yourself to speak on it. For sure. So obviously, you know, for the last three years, we have had our Proud Loud sauces um, really resonate in a way that I just never was expecting. Um, obviously, we launched the pandemic and folks were at home cooking more than ever. Um, and then in the last year, we launched nationally into Whole Foods and into Target as well. Um, and as we were thinking about building out our kind of next product line, 
we really wanted to continue to do what we're good at, which is like these damn delicious dankest sauces, if I'm being honest. They're so good, yeah. <laughs> I'm like doing the brand claps for you. I got Amy noodles, um, <laughs> sound like them. She's so dank. <laughs> and then we were just thinking about like, how can we continue to deliver that same proud and loud products filled with deep cultural integrity, but in an easier to consume format. So we are launching Saucy Noodles in May. Here we go. Um, they're these beautiful air-dried knife-shaved noodles, super thick and bouncy, and then with our delicious, really rustic sauces that almost feel like they're made with a mortar and pestle. Damn. And so it's just like premium in every way. And for me, the ultimate kind of reminder of Asian American pleasure and joy of like this delicious bowl of noodles that you really want to savor as opposed to a quick and dirty, you know, college 10 cent meal. Yeah. It's kind of the way that we And so like it. as the founder trying, you know, that's, it's a whole, it's an adjacent lane, but it's a fundamentally different lane. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, obviously it's exciting. I can't wait to try it if I'm <laughs> being honest. I'm sure it's dank. Um, but like how, how do you make that decision were you following data? Like, how, how do you get there? Yeah, I think it was, it's like literally like Vanessa's and I's partnership. It's like a combination of heart and brain. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the data was telling us folks love the cultural integrity of our products, but people are just not cooking as much. Right. And for us to kind of continue to become this, we want to become this household name. Right. When you think Asian American flavors, we need to move a little closer to ready made. Yeah. And so that it was a combination of like, listening to our community, and frankly, also gut. Like, Van right. Vanessa will tell you that I operate on gut. I'm fully one of those, like, intuit through things person. Right, right, right. Um, and I was just like, I I want to create something that someone can make in five minutes as opposed to 15. Yeah. And so the saucy noodles were born from that, the yeah. combination of, like, heart and brain. Emmy, you got any advice about uh, <laughs> taking adjacent lanes and putting them together? I'm reading the, this book, or like, it's so funny. Like, I feel like I, I'm, I'm actually listening to the book, an audio book, but no one likes saying that. So I'm like, I'm reading this book, but I'm <laughs> yeah. not. I'm listening no to it. Has, no one has books yeah. on the shelf anymore either. Well, I, so I, if I, I read a lot, but I got to do it slow with a pen, and I like, I like to like <laughs> have like, way. like, cause I, I read online so fast, yeah. but books I like to really read slow. Anyway, it's reading, listening. It's a Tony. It's Tony Fidel who did, you know, the Nest thermostat, the iPhone, the iPod, okay. and uh, it's called Build. And it's all these really good kind of like chapters and lessons on, you know, kind of being like a, from his lens as a, he's more known as like a hardware industrial designer, but, you know, navigated and helped build the modern day Apple through the iPod, which was, you know, the reclamation of Apple when the Mac wasn't selling that much. And then right. the iPod team parlayed into the iPhone and then he went and did the Nest. Anyway, there's one chapter where he talks about data and intuition and like you can data yourself out of intuition and you could intuition yourself away from reading the data. The data yeah, and yeah, I yeah. love phrases of like art and science yeah. and there is an art to understanding science and there's a science to respecting art. Yeah. And that interplay of both is where great leaders, creators, creatives, individuals, they understand. So what he was saying is to kind of make that more like linear or graspable <clears throat> is like early days when you're trying to think through something, be intuitive. And then as you go out, you get the quantitative feedback. But for those early parts, you don't want a 12 person team. You don't yes. want focus groups because no one's going to know yep. what you should do. It's like right. the famous stories of like Steve Jobs and Apple where like, if you listen, it's like the Henry T thing. It's like, if I listen to customer, everyone would still be like riding horses. You know, like no one even knew that they wanted <laughs> right, a car. Right. Yeah. So I think in the early days, what you're saying, it's like, 
okay, we looked at the data, we understood that like this was an opportunity that probably would make sense for us to go into and tap. Okay, circle that and then intuit what could make sense. Release it, get the feedback, either you know it crushes and takes off or there's some feedback where this didn't work and this emerged from it. And then just having those kind of startup cycles yeah. of feedback, totally. listen, iterate. Yeah. That's harder to do with physical product though. For sure. <laughs> yeah, for but sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was that, that combination of art and science. I love that. Yeah. And, um, you know, something that was really interesting about a discussion I had with Noah from Ruby, like he started as a still line of hibiscus water mm. and now he's re fully retired that line and it's mm. sparkling hibiscus water. I think you're right. I mean, it's like it was an intuit. There's intuition around like this is novel. This is interesting. This has clear benefits. It has the sh you know the tartness, but the sweetness that can help people sh curb sugar cravings. But at the same time, like the data was telling something different. And I think you're right. Like we were talking about how how like it's retiring skews when they don't work and things like that is actually like some of the proudest shit that should be mm. out there. Of like you know our intuition led us somewhere, we read the data, and he landed in something that's clearly, it's doing much better. Um, and it's all that combination of like the art and science that's really well, that, there. That, so. that discipline is really hard to have when yeah. they're, you're like babies or your I kids, know. right? It feels so personal. Yeah, absolutely. We've had to retire some products and stuff, you know, and at the portfolio, our investors were like never more proud of us mm. because it showed in us something that they were like, okay, these guys actually have discipline. Yeah. You know, they're- Willing they, to listen. And yeah. yeah, it's hard though because yeah. it's like for me especially because I'm like, oh, we'll make it work. Yeah. yeah, our first iteration of Agile, and no one knows this really, uh, we'll do a bonus episode with me and Max at some point, but um, it was digital screens on the back of 53 foot trucks. And that it was sick product, time, location, contextually aware, could figure out its surroundings from geofences and then change the ad mm. on the spot. If you were near in a, like, if you're in a Hispanic neighborhood, switch it to Spanish and two and a half years of iterating on it and just nuked it. And so. Sometimes I guess it, it do be like that. Yeah, it do be like that. <laughs> There's a good nerdy podcast called The Acquired, and I listened to an episode someone sent me on LVMH, which is okay. kind of like mm -hmm. the mother of all like roll-up yeah. businesses in the right, world. Right. And they take the ruthlessness of like American capitalism, infuse it with like mm -hmm. the heritage of European fashion house sensibilities. So I was like, wow, this is a really good episode. And then I was like, let me just check for the next one. The next one was on Nintendo. Oh. And like the history of Nintendo, it's like they're from like the 1800s. It's like they've been intertwined with like the Yakuza. They started doing trading cards, but they've continued and they've had like no one to inherit and had to marry into getting people right. to keep it moving forward in legacy style. Damn. But it's, it's constantly seeking out the next opportunity. Mm. And so there's always this DNA or this core, but you see that a lot for some of these like real like longevity brands. They've they preserved who they are, and you know them in a popular canon, maybe 50 years or whatever. Mm. But prior to that, they've been so many different iterations. Over 7,000 customers like Pet Lab, Chamberlain Coffee, Hero Cosmetics, Spike Ball, Dossier, TB12, Pit Viper, 100 Thieves. Tens of millions of packages shipped every year. 50 plus fulfillment centers across the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia. An app store with 50 plus integrations like Shopify, Amazon, NetSuite, and many more. Managed inventory distribution, D2C and B2B fulfillment capabilities, 99.96% of order shipping on time, 99.95% order accuracy rate. Yep, we're talking about ShipBob again. We know picking a fulfillment partner or 3PL is not easy. And equally importantly, we know you never want to have to move or pick another one. That's why we partnered with ShipBob. From zero to 100 million in sales, ShipBob has you covered.
Stop number three on this route uh, is going to be brand intersection questions. And I know this isn't like too profound, but something when I was doing research is you guys both have NYU in common. And I felt like it's not, it's too coincidental not to, to bring up in this context. So how do you think those experiences helped shape your entrepreneurial journey? And, and sometimes I think, you know, I think about the, the paths, right? It's like, Sometimes going and it not getting a ton of value teaches you something. And we talked about it like theory and application. So, yeah. you know, I'd love to just hear your guys' take on education in the context of, I'd say, your personal life and, and maybe less like, you know, a one-size-fits-all, obviously. Mm. I was the world's worst student. And I'm grateful for NYU in the sense that it gave me the context of being in New York City at 17 and figuring it all out. And I also, like, was living... Um, I was working pretty much since the first semester. And where parents, was home for you originally? I'm from Boston. Okay, yeah. Yeah, my parents are refugees, so we don't have generational wealth. So I right. literally was working as an RA. I was interning literally fall freshman year. Um, and so I think that teaches you a particular sort of grit. And I think, totally. like, what I learned from NYU, which has nothing, I did not learn this in a classroom, was largely, like, grit, hustle, as corny as that sounds, um, and how to use the internet. Like, New York is incredibly overwhelming as a 17-year-old. And I was like, I need to parse through it on the internet. So I was, like, just finding meetups to go to at 17. And I used to go to bars that I definitely couldn't get into. But I was like, oh, there's, like, a tech meetup here. I like startups. Like, maybe I'll show up. Like, Tumblr was all the rage back then. Yeah. Tumblr would do meetups. I had a Tumblr. I had to go find it and delete it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was, like, a live journal like, Zanga kid, girly. Kid Cudi and, like, pot. And, like, oh, my God. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> So yeah, it, like that's what I think my college experience gave me was like how to use internet, how to use the internet, how to build community, and then how to strangely build like a personal brand. Right. Because um, I was yeah, I studied marketing and computer science, but I, I mean, I guess I do marketing now, but I learned really <laughs> not that much in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so sure. I'm grateful for the context, um, and I don't think I used any of the actual education. Yeah. Well, but yeah, it teaches yeah. you how to learn. I think that's one of the yeah. one of the things. Yeah. I would say, like, strikingly similar to to Kim. Like, I I, I think I was constantly going to, like, meetups and stuff, yeah. like tech meetup this or whatever, general assembly, you know. Oh um, I think I came into the city. I had I got, like, financial aid to NYU and then financial aid for SUNY Purchase. And I, SUNY Purchase is a great program. I just wanted to be in the city. Yeah. Right. I didn't understand, like, a lot of my frustration was I didn't understand money. And I didn't know how a lot of like even financial aid, like I still had to pay it back. I still had to pay. It wasn't everything. It was, right. I didn't understand how expensive the city was yeah. and how Ooh. expensive living was. And so it, it required, I think, as you said, a lot of grit. Just, I wanted to just drop out and leave the city every single day, every single week for four years straight. Yeah. It, it was so bone on bone, brutally difficult. And I couldn't understand how other people were able to just focus on their studies. Right. Like it was just, it was just unfathomable for me. And, but like you're in the heart of New York city and yeah. you are around a lot of really, really, really intelligent, curious, talented people. Yeah. So I love education in the sense of learning and passing down knowledge. Yeah. I hate education in the sense of its in rigidity yeah. and structure. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, like to the victor goes the spoils and they tell kind of history. Like I hate a lot of the structured ways in which you're imposed or taught mm -hmm. 
that which is, but there's so much more yeah. around that. I love self-discovery. I love, I'm a kinetic autodidactic learner. Mm -hmm. So I like doing, and I like kind of exploring. Yeah. Um, I'm also like a special education kid. So I've, I've always been, you know, I think bright and curious, but I've always struggled in like. Mm -hmm. Traditional sort of. Exactly. Traditional so structures. like, yeah. you know, yeah. like. I so I have such like a love-hate relationship with NYU and with college. Um, I, you know, I advise people all the time. I'm like, I don't know if I think college is right for most people. It's it's mm -hmm. it's kind of like four years that costs you like a ton of money to like find yourself. Totally. Yeah. But I yeah. do think you can learn a lot and meet great people. Like, I, yeah. I just I don't know the whole model. Again, it's like it gets into these rabbit holes of like capitalism and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. learning is great. Education is great. Surrounding yourself with other people that you can. You're from a small town. You may not know there's more people like you. Right. You may not even know who you are. That's where college campuses are often these great safe places to like explore what is inside of you. Yeah. That's important. But I think the traditional structure of college, I yeah. would burn down to the ground in a second. Totally. Yeah, and you know, we're with Kim of the Internet here. I also think it's it's changing, right? It's like yeah. you, you can, can sort of, for better or for worse, um, grow up on the internet. And you yeah. can sort of like opt in and self-select into those things that drive you forward. And, you know, resources like this. Like, how did I learn about, I can't even study you guys, you know, for the past, like, 24 hours, right? And you can learn so much about these stories and things um, and learn through that way. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it gets disrupted. But I think the biggest thing for me has always been it's taught me that I can I can learn something that's complicated. Like, I didn't use finance, I didn't use Chinese, I didn't use computer science, like, ever. Um, maybe a little bit at one point. But, like, all of those things taught me, like, okay, well, you're going to go into this big, scary world, and like you might not know any of those things, but you've, you've been able to figure it out. Fundamentally, learning is so sexy, and like it's the fountain of youth. Like, mm -hmm. just learning and being curious, and, and whatever your definition is of that. Has fire one liners. <laughs> well, because I, I think that's important. You know, whatever your way as a personality that you feel comfortable learning, lean into that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's hard for a lot of parents to support that. Yeah. And as you said, admiring her parents, like, how could you not? Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, I want to talk about a really interesting topic. So Amsam obviously has digitally native roots and is moving omnichannel with Target and Whole Foods launch. Plug, yeah. go get them at Target and Whole Foods. Um, and so Emmett, cool. I, th I think what's really interesting about having, you know, one of the, when I was thinking about this question, having the two of you, you, you know, we talked about you, like, having all these experiences and all these different eras and when markets look completely different technology looks completely different mm. and there's this constant reinvention to reflect like the the state of i don't know just the world in that time and i i personally with our business seen like a really interesting shift from the digital native brands into the retail mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i really want to talk about um I don't know, just how where you guys think we are today and mm. again it's always going to be a moving target but um, just the evolution, like, is it binary D2C versus retail? Does it D2C ever become a, a marketing channel? Like, how do these things coexist? You know, there's just so much in there, and I know that's a vague question, but, yeah, I'd love to hear you yeah. try to break, break it down. So, Amazon was always going to be, first and foremost, a digitally, like, native brand, dig born on the internet, frankly. One, because it, the internet and culture are, like, pretty interchangeable now at this point. I agree. Um, and two... More importantly for us, like, we wanted the real estate to be able to tell Amsam's story in a real way. 
like so much of what I was saying of like Amazon being a culture brand first before we're a product brand, we needed to show people our faces. We needed to tell people the story of proud and loud reclamation. We needed to tell the story of equity and representation and, and justice. And you can't do that in a couple seconds on the shelf. Totally. And so it was always going to be, we need to use the internet, which is like what Vanessa and I are made of, right. first and foremost, to tell this beautiful story and then use that community and brand as a launch pad into retail. Because omni-channel is the future, I, I believe. Like, yeah. Unless you have like a really foolproof product that tells its story on its own and can just sit on the shelf and just fly... I think it needs every every company needs to become omni channel. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, we see the internet as like our origins, our ride or dies, our heart, our community, and then we see the like retail and how we do in retail as like how we're gonna kind of grow yeah. into the future. And and having that to sort of like re, it, it's challenging, right? Like so much of the product and the culture and the history, you can self educate online. Yeah. And now it's it's on the shelf, mm-hmm. and you don't get a lot of time. Um, how have you sort of had to like reinvent the company yeah. to be supporting what honestly is like a, a fundamentally new operating model? Yes, a totally new channel with complete. Oh yeah, we've learned a lot of things the hard way. Oh, I'm so sure. do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had a like so for example, I'll use a case study of when we launched into Whole Foods nationwide. We fundamentally rethought our packaging because when Amazon was born, our packaging was so optimized for this really beautiful Instagram unboxing. Like we were really thinking about not the person who's going to receive it, but also the person who is watching on social that that person receiving. Like that's how we were thinking about Amsom's packaging, our our Matchbox sampler, whole thing. Your guys' series was so great. Yeah, the series was great. What was it called (laughs) again? From URL to IRL. Yeah, that's what it was. And then we, we did, when we went into Whole Foods, we're like, oh man, the way that people, the minds that the people are in, their decision making framework, when they are in the store is fundamentally different. Right. And so it's we a different never, consumer too, honestly. Yeah, in yeah. A little overlap, but yeah. it definitely, you know, just different mindset. And so we had to we're like, okay, how can we meet them where they're at while never losing our heart? Like I want you to still look at this product and be like, oh, this is a very rowdy, rowdy company that stands for something proud and loud. And so we did little things like, okay, this should have been no no surprise. But putting a picture of what you can make with the sauces on the packaging was a huge learning. We learned about, you know, adding like flavor notes because a lot of folks may not know all these Asian dishes intricately. And then honestly, the biggest game changer was putting me and Vanessa's face on it. Yeah. I had no idea That's how much. fascinating. We were like, you know, before it was like this and we were like, oh, this is cool. Like. And maybe, you know, the way that folks were interpreting and they're like, oh, this is some gigantic conglomerate yep. leveraging totally. Asian flavors Kinda for trendiness. Like they old school brand And we're like, holy shit, that's literally the opposite of us. It's like me and Vanessa in a <laughs> tiny office in Bushwick. Like self-service QR to learn. Yeah. And then we literally put our pictures and then everyone was like, oh my God, we love it. Asian sisters. And I was like, I hate. Signatures. Yeah. Out of the signatures. I hated that in some ways we had to like perform our Asian-ness, but it also to me is such a reflection of the way that consumers are thinking about products. I think Wave 1.0, especially within Food CPG, people really cared what was in the product. You know, is it non-GMO? Is it organic? Is it keto? Wave 2.0 is who is behind this product and what do they stand for? And I think, unfortunately or fortunately, seeing Asian faces means something to consumers because with some of these larger social, cultural, racial dialogues happening in this country, 
people are starting to care about who is being compensated. Right. What sort of values am I perpetuating through my dollar? Because we live within capitalism, right? And so a lot of these big Man, movements so are showing up in this little packaging yeah, yeah, decision yeah. that we're making. And it's, yeah, it's rad, but it's, yeah, sometimes it gets pretty, uh, you're like, fuck. Yeah. It's, it's, and I'd love to hear your perspective just because you've seen like oscillations so many times. Yeah. Um, I'd love to just hear your perspective on, on, on one thing channel. I, one, one thing I was thinking when Kim was talking was like, probably like the audience that will listen to this is, mm. And it's almost like a probably amplification of who you've self-selected to be on the show. And these are like, they're all brands that have stories to tell. And they're all people that are storytellers. They're not like widget businesses right. or hyper-functional businesses. No shade to widget businesses. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, widget businesses. Because there's some people that just love like financial engineering. They just mm. love efficiency. Mm. That's their, like the people here, we're, we love design and, col and, and culture and culture and color and, and brand and authenticity. And so I think for you guys, like why putting the faces on the packaging and stuff is important is because that audience is looking for authenticity versus being confused of buying something where the dollars are maybe going to right. yeah. a larger corporation trying to nature style predatorily yeah. fit totally. in. Totally. Yeah. So totally. I guess I say all that because there's so many different ways to answer any question nowadays. Mm. And for the audience, and I think the audience of people speaking and the audience of people listening and the audience of people that are consumers for all of our businesses, which is honestly a very small subsection of larger mm. consumers, I think digital is so important if you understand that as the, the, this, the sandbox to play in mm. for what you said mm. of owning the ability to start telling your story. Mm -hmm. That's where the internet and digital is so incredibly important. If you're building a brand where people want to support those type of businesses, I like what these founders are about. I like the mission. They, I relate to them. I mm -hmm. see myself in them. The problems they're trying to solve are things I've felt. Mm -hmm. The internet is the best place yep. to reach a larger audience than just your small town or your neck of the right. woods in your city. And then again, reclamation and you guys being loud and proud, like that's the democratization that internet offers. Yep. And you don't have to be great at it. You just have to be honest to yourself yeah. and get the feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think from that, then it's like, as you said, going into, like I was thinking of like what you're talking about on, on Whole Foods and stuff of like back in the day, I'd go to like Sam Goody or Tower Records. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm looking for like, the underground punk band or rap right. band or whatever, yeah. if they made it to Tower Records or Sam Goody, you know that they had to have done something crazy for wherever they're from. They're from Boston, they're from New Orleans, and they built up this, this evangelized base through selling mixtapes out of the back of their car or stapling flyers and right. doing shithole dive bar shows enough <laughs> that some record exec, you know, we're gonna print up the CDs and it's a montage and then they end up in Tower Records. Right. I think it's kind of the same for shelf space mm. in prominent stores today. If you're going to actually stay on the shelf and have the sell through, there's a reason that you made it, you know? So I think that's important is you have to have whatever is the ground game first. And I think underground ground game is digital nowadays. Yeah. And if you can do that and you build, you know, the traction, the engagement, the community, they're going to look at the data and then they're going to have intuition say, they're onto something. Let's put them on the shelves and see what happens. 
And then you have to shift your focus for letting your community and audience know and going and looking and supporting that. So that I think digital, you can move super fast, super cheap, be super authentic, evangelize the community, get your voice out, control the narrative. But then for people to actually interface and touch it, you know, they're going to want to go where they go to shop. So you got to meet customers where they're at. Okay. But if you just go and meet customers where you're at off the bat, I don't know how you would do yeah. that. You'd have to have some in to do it. But if you did do it, what you said, they're not going to understand the full story totally. yeah. in, a, in a split second. Yeah, totally. absolutely. You know, to close out on Stop 3 here, I wanted to just sort of ask you guys, um, you've built such incredible things so far. Um, where, what are you building towards? Or I guess said a different way, like what is the vision for Amazon Pattern Brands respectively and what, what do you want that mark or legacy to be? Do you want to go first? Uh, I'll go first, yeah, and I'll try to be more succinct than I kind of have been. <laughs> um, sorry, editors. Um, I think I, I, I want us to be existing, first and foremost. Yeah. I think it's statistically really hard to build yeah. something that continues forward. I think secondly, I want customers to see the pattern brand seal of approval as meaning something that mm. takes years, yeah. right? So that's something that we have looked always as like five to 10 years out. And I think third, like this part is kind of the hardest is, is a great place to work under the new conditions of how we work. I think we mastered at Gin Lane and early pattern, a great culture, a great office, a great community, but COVID where we've hired people over the US and then globally, it's really understanding or trying to understand what that could look like. So a business that like still exists, a business that customers see as standing for something right. and a business that people see for workers and team as a great place to work. Each of those is going to take a really long time to achieve. Yeah. Great um, I want Amsom to be a household name. I want Amsom to usher into every single American pantry proud, loud Asian flavors with Asian faces and bodies making them. And um, yeah, I just, Nessa, when we first started out on our journey, we did like the Google brand workshop, you know, where it's like, what's the headline, you know, right, right, right. around the business. And um, it was, for us, it was like fish sauce is now a staple in every American household. And I think we're kind of working towards that future. Um, and I and I want Amazon to be a part of that. Thank you all on your way. We sold $6 million our first year and did $80 million in sales last year. That's what the COO of Adventure Challenge, a longtime customer of ShipHob's, shared with ShipHob the other day. The pace of growth for Adventure Challenge has been insane, but it wasn't all positive. It started with a failed crowdfunding project. Then, investors assured them that their business would fail. They raised $0 in outside capital. And it somehow only took a few years to hit $80 million in sales. They started off fulfilling all orders themselves. They'd have U-Hauls packed with thousands of products, making endless trips from their storage unit to the post office. It was not scalable. It was definitely hurting their growth. It definitely wasn't fun. That's when ShipOb started their partnership with Adventure Challenge. By being able to focus on growing the business and product development, sales took off like a rocket ship. While Adventure Challenge initially focused on D2C sales, their popularity started driving other conversations. They started to stock several hundred smaller boutiques across the country, then Francesca's, then Kohl's. And while they're based in California and most of their customers are in the U.S., the word of mouth and viral videos on TikTok and Instagram started driving demand around the world. So then they started filling orders out of Canada, and then the U.K., and now Australia. From a failed Kickstarter and getting $0 in outside investment on day one to over $80 million in revenue, 
Adventure Challenge has defied the odds and built a global powerhouse brand alongside their partnership with ShipOb, who's there to help you completely unlock your brand's growth. Read the entire story at shipop.com forward slash adventure dash challenge. All right, so <laughs> we're now at stop four. It's called the hot box as we are in a box. Um, and it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's our version of the hot seat. So it's Ooh. a this or that rapid fire question and answer um, sort of game here. And so essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you like A or B. And the ask is that you try to respond quickly What's up, Nick? Um, you try to respond quickly uh, with your response. So um, we'll have you go first. We'll have you go second. Okay. And so I'm going to ask the question, you answer, and then okay. you answer. Ready? Okay. You ready for the hot box? Boom, let's go. Cold plunge or hot tub? Hot tub. Cold plunge. Damn. Beach house or ski house? Beach house. Beach house. Nice. Coffee or tea? Tea. Tea. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Sunrise, because you can get there from two different ways. There you go. That's true. <laughs> uh, D2C or DTC? DTC. T. Neat or messy? Neat? Like, are we talking scotch? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty or? Yeah. Uh, neat? Yeah. As people? Yeah. yeah. Probably messy. Mm. Corgi or golden retriever? Neither. Neither. So basic. <laughs> Winter or summer? Summer. Summer. Tennis or golf? Neither? Yes. Bro. <laughs> Pineapple pizza or candy corn? <laughs> kind of neither. Uh, yeah, we gotta pick one though. Pineapple pizza. pizza. I guess same. <laughs> Live music or DJ? DJ. Oh. Uh, They're I not think, mutually exclusive. Yeah. We gotta pick one. It's the game. I think it's DJ. Sorry. Live music. Live in space or live underwater? Underwater. Underwater, definitely. Fight one horse-sized duck or one thousand duck-sized horses. Duck-sized horses. I was thinking about this earlier, and I, could, I would try <laughs> to take on the one, the one big one. You would? A thousand's that. a lot. A thousand is a lot. I would be trying little. to like kick them around them. and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Oh. Sweet snacks or salty snacks? Salty. Salty. Call, text, or audio notes? Voice notes. Call, text, or audio notes? Yeah. Um, text. Mm -hmm. Reading or writing? Writing. Writing. Work remote or work on-site? <sighs> on-site. I miss on-site so right now, so I'll say that. Yeah. Would you rather do the laundry or do the dishes? Dishes? I'm a dishes guy. Yeah. Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok? TikTok. Twitter. Can't even think about that one. I mean, maybe Twitter for me, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're pretty prolific on Twitter, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you dancing or are you people watching? Dancing. I'm people watching. Cocktails, but I like dancing. Cocktails or beers? Cocktails. Cocktails. Would you rather feel too hot or too cold? Too cold. Mm. Too hot's kind of, I yeah. don't know. They Probably too cold. Yeah. I'm Southeast Asian. Like, what is too hot? Yeah. You, know? you get one animal to protect you against a horde of zombies. You're choosing a gorilla or a grizzly bear. Grizzly bear? Grizzly bear. Uh, I'll go gorilla. <laughs> Give up bread for life or cheese for life? I'm, di I'm giving up bread. You cheese. can take it. I'm, I'm giving up cheese. I'm, I'm lactose Are you playing the air guitar or air drums? Air drums. Uh, I, I like doing a little bit of the, yeah. all, right, all right, all right. Board games or video games? Video games. Depending on which one. Board games. Start early or leave late? Start early. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Probably nonfiction. Where do you want to travel next, Europe or Asia? Asia. I'm, I'm planning a trip to uh, Tokyo, so Asia. Yes. There you go. 
Rich and Famous or Rich and Unknown? Rich and Unknown. Yeah. That's, that's, our, that's our Migos album. Yeah. <laughs> Playlist or podcast? Playlist. Playlist. Cardio or weight training? Weight training. Cardio. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Pancakes. <laughs> speak to animals or speak 10 languages? <gasps> animals. Yeah. Definitely animals. Yeah. That's been a controversial one so far. That's a hard one. Netflix yeah. or YouTube? YouTube. <laughs> I'll go YouTube. Yeah. Telepathy or teleportation? Teleportation. Tele- te- telepathy is when you can read, read people's minds. No, I don't want that. I don't yeah, want that. Either. I think teleportation's hot. Yeah. Trucks or billboards? Don't fuck this one up. Okay. <laughs> trucks, clearly. It's clearly, tr- clearly trucks. Not even, truck. no brainer. All right, would you rather see good news or bad news first? Bad news. Bad news. All right, well, bad news is... The show's over. We're at stop five. See what I did there? Um, guys, honestly, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me. I yes. wanted to make sure um, I gave you guys an opportunity to plug where people can find your brands, um, when things, new products are dropping, where they can learn more about yourselves. So I want to let you guys do that. Yeah. Find us at Omsom, um, omsom.com. You can find me, kimoftheinternet.com, and kimoftheinternet on all platforms. Um, uh, patternbrands.com and on social media as Pattern Brands, and then on Emmett Shine on Instagram at Emmett and other places, Emmett Shine. But check out Pattern, got a lot of cool brands. Yeah. Yeah. And Amsom's in Whole Foods, right? We're in so, Whole Foods, every so, single Whole Foods in the nation, and over 550 targets. All right, well, let's, uh, we're right, yeah, we're right Whole here. Foods here. Let's go check let's them out. Go.